Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Healthcare, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com website. On today's show, we're going to discuss how to be prepared for disasters. Not just the really big ones, but the little ones that are so common and that can unexpectedly cause injury and even death. On a previous show... We learned how the American Red Cross helps in over 70,000 disasters every year. We're following up on that today, learning more about our personal roles in disaster preparedness. We're going to discuss making plans that could save a life, perhaps yours or even one of your children's. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Bradley. He's been a Red Cross volunteer for over 30 years. He has 20 years' experience as a firefighter and paramedic, so he's seen a lot including too many preventable tragedies. Dr. Bradley has both academic training and practical experience to share with us. He attended medical school at Georgetown University, completed a residency in internal, I'm sorry, in emergency medicine at Stanford University, and then did a fellowship in emergency medical services with the Houston Fire Department. He's now board certified in emergency medicine and is chief of the Division of Emergency Medical Services and Disaster Medicine at the University of Texas Medical School at Houston. Richard, thank you for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. The Red Cross has done a nice job creating a clear message. What, what is that message related to what, pe- what people should be ready to do with respect to first aid? Well, with respect to first aid or disasters or any type of emergency, we want people to be Red Cross ready. And that means get a, cl- get a kit, make a plan, and be informed. So let's discuss first the kinds of situations in which people may need the kit, the plan, and the information. What are the common situations that people face? Well, the common situations are everyday household emergencies, cuts, scrapes, uh, sprains, strains, minor uh, broken bones. These things happen with predictability, Um, hopefully not very often, but we know that if you go long enough, someone's going to get a cut and be bleeding, uh, and sometimes that bleeding is serious, and so we want people to be prepared for that. And for the other emergencies, like uh, a broken ankle or chest pain, which could possibly be a sign of a heart attack. And then things that are less common? Well, things that are less common but perhaps bigger impact would be something like a disaster. Uh, If you live in earthquake country, you've got to be prepared for earthquakes. If you live anywhere uh, along the Atlantic and Gulf states, as we get into the summer, you have to be prepared for hurricanes, uh, ice storms, prolonged power outages. There's a number of possible scenarios that we have to be prepared for. We want people to think not about being prepared so much for one single type of disaster, 
but taking an all-hazards approach to their emergency preparedness. So if you're prepared for an earthquake, you'll be prepared for a hurricane, you'll be prepared for a terrorist attack. I think when we hear the word disaster, we think about these major events. But I understand that the Red Cross helps in something like 70,000 disasters a year across the United States. We're probably not talking just about earthquakes. Um, Home fires, um, things like that are probably somewhere in the middle between these common household emergencies and the real um, front page of the news disasters that we've become all too familiar with. Yes, sir, that's right. Uh, The Red Cross is probably one of the uh, most active disaster response organizations nationwide. And a lot of people don't uh, know about this uh, mission that they have, uh, not just an apartment fire, but even a single-family residence. If there's a family that's displaced and has nowhere to go because of of an emergency like a house burning down uh, or being just uninhabitable because of a fire, the Red Cross will come in and make sure that they have uh, a place to sleep for the night. They'll make sure that they've got food to eat and they've got some clothes to put on their on their back. Uh, and that is uh, one of the terrific services, one of the many terrific services that the Red Cross does uh, for the American people. Okay, so those are the situations. Now, the plan is get a kit, make a plan, be informed. What kind of kit should people be thinking about? Well, we want people to have an emergency preparedness kit. So that includes uh, some water, some food, a battery-powered radio, medications, but particularly a first aid kit. Now, a first aid kit, you can buy those ready-made. That's probably the best way to go. Uh, You can also make them yourself. It doesn't have to be anything really fancy. Uh, what we, I do recommend that people have in their kit is some gloves to protect themselves from body fluid contact, some bandages, sterile gauze, and some tape, uh, some type of breathing barrier. So if you're giving rescue breaths, you don't have to put your uh, mouth directly over the person's mouth that you're breathing on. Uh, and those are specially made devices, but you can find those in lots of places. And then things like uh, aspirin, uh, 81 milligrams, the, the, the small aspirin, um, in case somebody develops chest pain. You mentioned medications. Is there anything besides aspirin you were thinking of? Aspirin would be the main thing for the first aid kit. But in the emergency kit, if anyone is taking medications that they need every day, their blood pressure medicine, their thyroid medicine, their diabetes medicine, they need to have an extra supply available in their emergency kit. And for, in some cases, that may be uh, one or even two uh, emergency kits. If if someone uh, works away from the home and there's any possibility that an emergency could strand them away from their medications, they have to spend uh, a night at the office uh, because the there's been a major emergency and transportation is disrupted to the point that they can't get home. Uh, they need to make sure they have their diabetes supplies or any other critical medicine with them at work. Being an advanced emergency preparedness kind of guy, do you keep antibiotics or anything along those lines in your emergency preparedness kit? No, sir, I don't. Um, there's um, only a few uh, situations where antibiotics would be really important, and those are pretty rare. Uh, and, and we're really getting into the realm of, uh, well, look at it different ways. One would be a biological attack, terrorist attack using biological agents. Uh, that's very unlikely. Uh, and if it does happen, uh, there's a good chance that my antibiotics might expire before that happens. Um, and also, there's a, a good chance of misusing antibiotics, and, and they're, not, they're not completely without side effects. Uh, there's a risk of allergic reactions. They can cause some complications. So, so no, not for the biologic attacks. And then for the uh, regular infections, no, sir, again, the answer is no. 
if if someone has an infection, even in, in my kit, uh, I don't use it. Uh, I would I would plan on being able to reach a, a source of medical care within a couple days before the antibiotics would become critical. Super. Now, you mentioned aspirin. Um, I imagine there could be potential side effects from aspirin, but the the um, benefits outweigh the risks? Yes, sir, they do. Um, now, most people uh, or a lot of people who have uh, heart disease know that they have heart disease. And if they suddenly start experiencing uh, severe crushing chest pain, um, the, we recommend that they go ahead and take uh, at least 81 milligrams, if not four, of those small aspirin, uh, baby aspirin, at once chew up and swallow them. And that can even be okay for people who don't have history of heart disease but are having heart attack-like chest pain, as long as they're not allergic to aspirin. We cover this in our first aid courses, and this is both our first aid and CPR courses, in fact. And this is one more reason why we would suggest it's important for people to take our courses um, so that they can understand what are the signs of a heart attack and when can you do this. Because aspirin, although we think of it as a you know everyday, over-the-counter medicine, been around for uh, a long, long time, it's actually a very powerful medication that uh, inhibits the activity of the uh, platelets in the blood, the small uh, particles in the blood that cause the blood to clot. Uh, and since a heart attack is caused by a blood clot, inhibiting those platelets can really go a long way to limiting the size of the blood clot in the heart until someone can get to uh, a hospital. So aspirin can be a really important thing to give. Uh, it can be self-administered or administered to somebody near you uh, if they're having really significant chest pain that could be a heart attack. I think people underestimate the potency of aspirin. It does sound like something, one of the few things a person could really make a difference in, in the course of a heart attack early on besides getting somebody to the hospital very quickly. Absolutely, yes, sir. And uh, that's an important message for people to remember, the, the time element. Uh, for both heart attacks and also for strokes, we know uh, beyond any doubt that time uh, makes all the difference. Uh, the sooner we uh, can get someone to a hospital where they can uh, try to reverse the clot and open up blood flow, whether it be the heart in a heart attack or the brain in a stroke, the better the chances of, of a good recovery. Uh, and I'll s switch over to stroke for a second. You wouldn't believe how many people delay going to the hospital when they have symptoms of a stroke. If they have symptoms where uh, an arm uh, becomes weak or numb or their leg is weak or numb or or they have trouble speaking, uh, or they lose vision in an eye, there are a lot of people, uh, amazingly, who will uh, experience these symptoms and just wait to see if it gets better. Uh, we don't want people to wait because time is absolutely of the essence. So if somebody develops uh, an inability to use an arm or a leg or becomes weak all of a sudden on one side, or they can't speak right, or they lose vision, uh, that's a big emergency. And we want people to get to the hospital right away and if there's any delay at all, to call 911 so that we can get some paramedics uh, or an emergency medical technicians to them right away to start assessing them and make sure they go to uh, an appropriate stroke center if it's indicated. Now, strokes commonly caused by clots, just like heart attacks, do you want to give the person who has stroke symptoms aspirin, or is there concern that the patient may also be having another form of stroke where there would be bleeding and the aspirin could make things worse? That's right. We're currently not recommending aspirin uh, for the lay public to give when there's stroke symptoms, only for heart attack symptoms. 
And the reason being is that some strokes are not caused by a blood clot, but they're actually caused by a broken blood vessel and there's bleeding. In that case, we don't want the bleeding to continue. So giving a medicine like aspirin, which makes the blood less likely to clot, can make the stroke larger. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Fellman. We're speaking today with Dr. Richard Bradley about first aid and Red Cross preparedness. Richard, you've discussed um, a number of Red Cross programs to educate people. Can you tell us about those in more detail? Well, you bet. The Red Cross has a uh, whole package of programs uh, that are really tailored to fit the needs of the students who take the classes. So there are classes that are focused on uh, someone who is uh, at home, uh, at home by themselves with a, single, with, a, with a small family, at home with young children. We have classes that focused on caring for uh, children and babies. Uh, we know that uh, it's rare, but young babies, infants can have medical emergencies. They can stop breathing. And knowing how to take care of choking in a small child who's just beginning to put things in their mouth can be the difference between life and death. We also have a number of programs that are focused on the workplace. And there are a number of uh, occupations that require first aid and CPR training. And so we have courses that are focused on people who need to meet requirements to be trained at work. We also have requirements, excuse me, we also have courses for uh, lifeguards and for swimming, uh, water safety. That's one of the uh, big products uh, that the Red Cross has been a, a leader in is uh, making sure that people are trained to be water safe and also training uh, lifeguards around the world on how to uh, uh, do their lifeguard job in a number of settings, whether it's a pool or open water setting uh, or at a lake. Uh, the other thing that we are including in our courses now and have been for several years is teaching people how to use an automated external defibrillator, Wow. or AED. Now, you're teaching the general public how to shock people. Exactly. Wow. Now, the thing is, is you know, 20 years ago, uh, defibrillation was only being done by licensed uh, providers. In fact, when it first started, it was a skill that people thought could only a doctor could do. Uh, and then we started saying, well, maybe we should allow emergency medical technicians and paramedics to defibrillate. And the number of lives saved went up dramatically. And now what we've seen in the last decade or so is uh, the uh, development of a defibrillator that works automatically. So the way these are used is they're used in a specific type of emergency called uh, ventricular fibrillation. So this is where the heart has stopped but is quivering and not pumping any blood. Um, and this is probably the most common uh, of a problem to have when somebody has such a severe heart attack that their heart actually stops. The problem is, is that for every minute that we delay getting the heart restarted, the chance of survival drops 11%. So we have to get the heart restarted absolutely as quickly as we can. So that's what has pushed the development of these automated uh, external defibrillators. And now, uh, Someone can get to somebody right away, uh, put the automated external defibrillator on, and just push a, push a button to start it. And it will automatically analyze the heart rhythm, determine if it's a shockable rhythm. If the person's rhythm, heart rhythm is not shockable, then it will not advise to shock. 
If it detects the need for a shock, it will automatically charge itself up to the appropriate energy, and then it will tell you, stand back and push the button to deliver the shock. So there is a requirement for some human to actually push the shock button, but the machine tells you when to shock. Now, because time is so important, what we're seeing more and more and more is the deployment of publicly accessible uh, AEDs, or automated external defibrillators. One of the most common places you'll see them now is in airports, where they usually don't, you don't go more than a couple hundred yards without seeing an AED. But we're seeing them now in businesses and shopping malls. And this is another um, uh, therapy, another, another way we can help people, where the average person on the street can save a life. CPR is good, but shocking a heart that's not pumping is absolutely the definitive treatment to get somebody um, to get the heart restarted and to save a life. And this is something that anybody can do. However, even though the AEDs are simple to use, you do have to have a basic familiarity with them. Uh, the problems that I've seen people um, do when we practice, if they've never been trained, is they don't know how to get the pads stuck on the chest appropriately. That's a simple barrier. We can overcome that in a brief class. Uh, but that is one of the most important additions, I think, in the past decade to American Red Cross CPR and first aid training is training the lay public uh, how to use an AED and how to save a life. So how involved are these various classes? Are these like six-week programs, or is this a five-minute training session? Oh, no, sir. They, they, they vary in, in length uh, depending on the type of class. The shortest classes can be done in just a few hours. Uh, longer classes may take a day or two. Uh, but, no, these are things that you could easily do. And, for example, uh, when we had young children in the house, my wife, who's uh, not a medical person, uh, took a, a first aid and CPR class for the family, including uh, children and infants. And in, uh, I think it was a four-hour class. She learned everything she needed to know and how to take care of our, uh, our family and our children uh, if they had any common medical emergencies, such as bleeding or choking or if they stopped, stopped uh, breathing. I have the general sense that perhaps the the choking treatment education may be the single most productive thing to teach people because it seems to be a fairly common event. I I know um, the day before my wedding we had a little dinner party and my, a piece of lettuce went down the wrong way and probably could have killed my wife if somebody hadn't um, hadn't gotten that thing out of there very quickly. Yeah, and you know it is a. Uh a great feeling. I've been at places where somebody has uh, uh, taken care of somebody with a completely blocked airway from choking, and uh, you know it's a great feeling to know that uh, you are the person who made a difference and who saved someone's life because you applied the training that you got uh, in a first aid and CPR class, and you were able to uh, get the the uh, food or whatever other other object was blocking the airway and get it out of the airway. And, uh, and save the person. Well, we've discussed the kind of emergency preparedness kit people should have. We've discussed a little bit about the Red Cross programs to educate people on various first aid kinds of situations. One of the components of the general Red Cross plan was to make a plan. What, what specifically does that mean? Well, make a plan means having an idea of what you're going to do uh, when an emergency happens. Talk it over with your family or, or the other people in your household. Talk about uh, what emergencies are most likely to happen, whether you're at work or at home. 
uh, figure out uh, who's going to be responsible for different things, have a plan on how to meet and how to uh, reconnect your family. If you've got children in school, you need to uh, understand what your school's plan will be. Uh, for example, in most cases, that would probably be so the school's not going to release the kids if, in many types of emergencies. But if something uh, happens, and it's going to depend upon the emergency, you know, the family may not be able to reconstitute or get back together uh, in the way that they normally do. Uh, for example, if a, a tanker truck carrying a hazardous material started leaking uh, just upwind of your home, uh, they may evacuate the neighborhood. Well, that's one thing if everyone's at home and you all evacuate together, but what happens if the neighborhood gets evacuated and uh, the children are at school and one of the family members is you know, 20 miles away at work and they're not letting anybody back into the neighborhood at the end of the day, how are you going to figure out where to go and get everybody back together? Uh, we also know that after uh, most large emergencies, the local telephone system is absolutely overwhelmed and shut down. Um, so there needs to be a plan on how people can uh, let each other know that they are, are safe and well. Uh, the Red Cross has a website, um, Safe and Well, uh, to do that. But a, a, an even better method is to have a planned person outside the area where you can, who you can call and say, hey, I'm okay, and everybody knows this is going to be our, our designated contact out of the area. If you live in uh, hurricane territory, uh, you might have somebody who uh, lives in the Midwest who you can call and say, this is the person we're going to check in with, uh, Aunt Jane, and we're going to tell her we're okay in case we can't get back together. A lot of times after a major emergency, it's easier to make a call out of the area than it is to make a call within the area. With some of the more minor, if you want to call it that, household disasters being a common event, I wonder if getting out of your house has to be one of the key elements of a plan, for example, in the case of a house fire. And I also wonder to what extent do some of the safety precautions that people put in to protect themselves, for example, windows with bolts that are screwed in to keep people from entering their home, gets in the way of people's uh, exiting their home in case of a serious emergency? Well, that is an important uh, thing to consider in your plan. Um, and as a family sits down and talks about their home evacuation plan, you know, think where is a fire likely to occur um, in the kitchen, in the laundry room, in the fireplace, where a candle is burning, uh, where there's a space heater, uh, and think, okay, if we sleep upstairs and the kitchen is near the stairs and there's a fire in the kitchen, that might block the stairs. So if the stairs are blocked because of a fire, what is my alternate route out of the house? Uh, in some cases, you may be able to open a window and go into a lower roof. In some cases, you may decide, I've got to get a, a, uh, an escape ladder and keep it under the bed. In some cases, you may have to say, there's no way out other than going to the window and waiting for the firefighters to come with the ladder and put a ladder up to the window and bring me down. But you have to have a plan for how you're going to do that. You also have to have a plan for where you're going to go after you leave the house. And this is something, especially with children, that you need to practice. Um, what happens tragically is that when there's a house fire, everyone evacuates, and if they don't have a planned meeting point, 
people will go different directions. Often this happens at night in the dark. People are panicking. They're scared. Oh, this sounds and, like it's going to have a bad ending. <laughs> yeah, right. And people go to different locations. Somebody goes to the neighbor's house. Somebody's out front. Somebody else is in the backyard trying to find the dog. And then somebody says, well, where is Johnny? Joey, yeah. Joey's and it turns out still Johnny's house, fine. Huh? He went over to the neighbor's house. But people start going back into a burning house looking for a missing person. And that can sometimes have tragic results. Even if that doesn't happen, being able to account for everyone and telling the firefighters when they come, everyone's out, is going to give the firefighters an extra degree of safety. They want to know, is everyone accounted for, or do we have to go in into a dangerous situation and start doing a search and rescue operation? And smoke detectors for the home? Oh, absolutely. Big, big lifesaver. Um, I can tell you when I work uh, in an emergency department, if we have someone come in, uh, who's died in a house fire, and this, this happens, unfortunately, you know, fairly regularly, uh, where someone dies, and it's obvious that they didn't die of burns. They died of, of breathing in too much smoke. Uh, and I'll ask the firefighters who bring them in, was there a smoke detector in the house? And the answer is always no. Um, you know, they're, And then if we have them, of course, you've got to make sure that the batteries are changed twice a year. Um, a smoke detector with a dead battery or a removed battery is no good. Uh, you never know what day or what night your house is going to catch on fire. And so you've got to be prepared all the time. I believe some of the smoke detectors also detect other things like carbon monoxide. Is that, is that an extremely rare problem or is that worth incorporating? No, it's, it's actually quite important. Uh, we strongly recommend carbon monoxide indica- uh, detectors, uh, especially if you live in a part of the country uh, that uh, – Uses if you use you know something that that's a combustion device to warm your house. If you use uh, uh, gas or coal or anything wood, anything that you're burning to warm your house, there's always a chance that it could not be venting properly, and uh, the 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 carbon monoxide is deadly. And that's another problem we see uh, uh, quite a lot of. Now here in my part of the world, I live in the in the south in the Gulf area. Uh, we often lose power, uh, especially after a bad storm. And what we see is that people uh, will try to run generators. And that also happens in parts of the country during the winter when their power's out after an ice storm, and they're running generators to try to stay warm. Uh, we have to remember that anytime you run an engine that runs on gasoline or diesel, that its exhaust is producing carbon monoxide. So, so using a generator inside your house would be like hanging around with a running car in a, part, in a closed garage, and you'd be... To putting your life at risk doing that. Exactly right. Now, you know, I understand why people want to do that is, you know, if the power's out for three or four days, uh, you, know, you don't want someone to come and steal your generator. Uh, but the generator has to be exhausted to the outside. Um, a carbon monoxide detector or an alarm is one thing that will help you uh, if you are doing anything that produces carbon monoxide, like running a water heater, running a gasoline, fur- excuse me, running a natural gas furnace or any type of gas furnace, uh, or burning coal or, or a fireplace. Uh, but the first step, if you've got a generator running, is don't run it in the house. While I'm thinking about these kind of disasters, it, it makes me wonder about a vacation trip to the beach. Is uh, the beach a very hazardous place? Well, the beach can be a hazard. The biggest concern is for people going to an area where they're um, not familiar with the currents. Uh, and there's a phenomenon that a lot of beaches have called a riptide. So a riptide is just a current that rapidly uh, goes out to sea away from the beach. Um, the problem is, is that they're very hard to see or to detect, and they're fairly narrow. 
And if you or the kids are out wading in the water uh, and you get caught in a riptide, it can pull you out to sea pretty quickly. Um, the key is is no one should be in the water that's, that where they could possibly be beyond their level to to uh, be on their skill level. Uh, it's good to make sure that you've got a lifeguard present. So if you're going to a beach and you're going to be in the water, it's good to be at a beach with a lifeguard. And also importantly, if you've got children who can't swim, you need to have an adult keeping their eyes on those children continuously. And uh, I know how hard this is. If I go to a, a, an outing or a party and there's lots of people there and lots of families and lots of kids, and I see friends I haven't seen in a while and I want to talk to them, and once you start engaging somebody in conversation, your eyes are off your child. And it only takes a few minutes uh, for tragedy to occur. And in fact, we think that this is so important that we would say, if you are near water and you've got a non-swimmer, especially a child, uh, we recommend that you put a, a life vest, a PFD, on that child, even if they're not in the water, so that if they do fall in, uh, at least they'll be floating so you can get them out more quickly. Uh, I wonder if that other tragedy sometimes happens where you take your eye off your child, the child runs to get an ice cream, but you don't see your child, and now you're wondering if they're in the ocean, and you lose adults looking for the child in the ocean. The child is actually safe on the beach somewhere. Absolutely. Uh, knowing where, where your children are uh, is, is, is uh, a key part of preventing a, uh, a tragedy. Well, Richard, I, I greatly appreciate the time you've spent uh, educating us about first aid. Do you have any specific final suggestions for our listeners about their health, their health care, emergency preparedness, or otherwise? Well, I think that it really comes down uh, uh, to what the Red Cross's current uh, uh, slogan is, which is have a kit, make a plan, be informed. I think that you need to think about what might happen to you, you need to have some basic equipment to get you through both the common everyday emergencies and also the unusual emergencies like a disaster. You have to make sure you've got your plan, where your family's going to go, what you're going to do, how you're going to reconnect if something happens, and then be informed. Take a class. Know how to take care of people. Know how to use a defibrillator. Know when to give aspirin to somebody with chest pain. Know how to do CPR. And these things can save not only the, uh, the fortunate bystander who you happen to see and have a chance to save a life, but sometimes these can make a difference between life and death for somebody who you love. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You bet, Steve. Staying healthy is as much a personal responsibility as it is a right. There's so much talk about health care reform and what the government can do. There are things that we need to do to, to take our health into our own hands. Many of our guests have talked about the need to pay attention to diet and exercise, even to interpersonal affairs as a way of staying healthy. You know, they stress having passion in our personal and professional lives, even having a pet, having companionship uh, as important to our health. In addition, uh, we learned today there are some important measures that we can take to prevent avoidable injuries and disasters. And we can become prepared to handle those events when they, um, when they occur. The Red Cross is certainly a valuable educational resource that we can use to, to educate ourselves and to prepare ourselves to meet these disasters. 
You can start at their website, www.redcross.org. You know, I, I encourage you, visit their site. You'll find some information. You may find it helpful to sit down with your family at the dinner table and discuss it. I know that after looking at it, I certainly did, made a plan with my young children about, you know, which way to leave the house in case of fire, where we should meet up. Um, another thing you can do if you want a more advanced um, educational experience is to take a class at your local Red Cross chapter. This kind of patient empowerment, I think, is critical. I think it embodies the kind of thing we're trying to achieve through the Doctor Score website, empowering patients to give doctors feedback. Um, the Red Cross, I think, does a, a fabulous job helping empower you to prepare for emergencies you may face. Well, that's it for today's show. I hope you'll join us next week when we're scheduled to speak with Dr. Mark Hall. He's a nationally recognized expert on the legal aspects of health care reform. He's a professor in, in both public health sciences and the law school at Wake Forest University. Expect a lively and informative program from Dr. Hall that will tell you what you can expect from health care reform legislation without all the usual partisan nonsense. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Have a healthy week. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to health care empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E dot com. DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Health Care.